Good morning, Northbrook. The text, which I will use as a springboard for this sermon, is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. In particular, the core verses I will focus on is verses 3 and 4. Once again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. As you're turning there, I want to comment that not counting various Sunday school classes and other similar teaching opportunities, in my 30 years at this church, I may have only addressed the main Sunday gathering of the saints three or four times. As an electrical engineer working where I do, I have the opportunity to speak to audiences on various technical topics. This occasion is different. I'm not speaking merely to any audience, but to the appointed gathering of the saints. Seeing as this is the first time I'm addressing the gathering in the role of an elder, I carefully and prayerfully considered what scripture to select to set a beginning and a foundation. What better beginning and what better foundation could be found than the gospel message itself? As Paul says much earlier in 1 Corinthians, well before the selected sermon text for today, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So in consideration of that, I decided on the text of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, which I will now read aloud. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Lord, I pray that I will handle your words as they should be handled. Lord, I pray that they will hear your words even if they don't hear mine. The gospel is such a rich topic that one hardly knows where to begin and end. When I speak on technical engineering topics, I never have time to cover everything. So I will mention that I have one presentation that I do to introduce the concept of radio communication, which I call Radio 101. In Radio 101, I spend one and a half hours just barely introducing the main topics. Don't worry, I'm not going to speak that long this morning. I find, though, that I have the same problem, too much material for too little time. Therefore, I beg your forgiveness for perhaps overly summarized or superficial treatment of this glorious topic. Even before starting, it is necessary to break the message down into parts. If a series were to come from this, I would title the series Gospel 101. For this, perhaps, the first installment of the series, the title I have chosen for the sermon is Sin in the Gospel. Sin in the Gospel. How can there be any sin 
within the gospel, the good news of God. The good news of God was sin. Perhaps you might think this title somewhat like clickbait. I assume you probably already know what clickbait is. It is typically links on the internet, but it could be headlines on the newspaper that have a sensational aspect to them that later when you look at the whole story, turns out to not quite be like it first sounds. For example, you might see a headline that says, man removes head from stranger in supermarket brawl, and then you read the article and find out that one guy stole another guy's cabbage. In this case, I intend to show that sin in the gospel may sound sensational at first hearing, but it's not true. To do this, I want to focus on verses 3 and 4, and then focus on just one aspect of verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Today I am focusing within these two verses on the phrase, for our sins, while trying to keep the whole context in mind. If there are future sermons in this series, I would expect to continue to move the focus to other parts and other aspects of what Paul calls of first importance. This would include topics of why was it necessary for Christ to die? How was it in accordance with scripture? Why was it necessary that he was both buried and raised from the dead? But to keep today's sermon within bounds, I am focusing on the phrase for our sins in the context of Christ died in verse three. Paul starts this section in verse one by saying he wants to remind the Corinthians, and by extension us, of the gospel that he preached to them. Note that Paul says that what he is saying is of first importance. Not just, not just these two verses, of course, but everything through at least verse 11. How is it, if it is of first importance, that Paul waits all the way until chapter 15 to say something of first importance? Why does he wait that long? Let's take a quick look. Chapter 1, he states that he is writing to believers and encourages them. Chapters 1 through 4, Paul deals with divisions in the church and how the Corinthians should view the apostles and those who brought them the message of salvation by appealing to the death of Christ on the cross and all that follows from that, including the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Chapters 5 and 6, Paul deals with sexual immorality in the church body by reminding them that sin should be put to death in the flesh so that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Christ being our Passover lamb, which speaks of judgment of sin being passed over by the death of Christ. He reminds them and us that we were bought with a price. In chapter 6, in connection with rebuking them for lawsuits against each other, he reminds them of all kinds of sins that keep the unrighteous from the kingdom of God. He says in verse 9 through 10, and I ask you to pay close attention to this list of sins, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What kind of good news would that be? Thanks be to God. Paul continues in verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In this day, we are living in where people are so concerned about our identity, who we are, 
we find that Paul was ahead of all of that, telling those who believe that their identity has been changed from the sins that define them to a new identity of being in Christ. This is a marvelous truth worthy of another sermon for another time, even though we yet in our bodies at the present world, at the present time, have sin, yet if we are in Christ, our identity is found in him, not in our sin. Continuing our quick walk through 1 Corinthians, even in chapter 7, which deals with practical matters such as marriage and bond servants, he speaks about being bought with a price. This speaks to our need to be purchased out of our sin situation. Chapter 8 deals with food offered to idols, and he talks about not destroying the weak brother for whom Christ died. In chapter 9, he discusses his freedom in Christ, yet being under the law of Christ. Note that he says that he's under the law of Christ rather than that of the law of Moses. In chapter 10, he speaks, again, to people who are already believers, not to indulge in sexual immorality, not to put Christ to the test, not to grumble, not to engage in idolatry. How? Paul tells them and us that God has provided a way of escape from temptation. So that we, we see that Paul has already been reminding of the Corinthians, the Corinthian believers of the gospel, including their salvation from sin all throughout the preceding chapters. Maybe he did not always explicitly remind them like we see here in today's main text of chapter 15, but it is there. But now, in chapter 15, he wants to remind them more explicitly of all the elements of the gospel. This is in preparation for one of the last major correctives he wants to apply to them. He has been applying correctives to them all throughout his letter up to this point. Now he is preparing to correct their misunderstanding or disbelief of the resurrection from the dead and its place in the gospel and in the believer's life. Lord willing, a future sermon will focus on that. However, Paul's collection of all these aspects of the gospel in one place makes it convenient for us to examine each piece one by one. These verses provide a springboard to all of what scripture has to tell us on these topics. So yes, Paul is working towards the resurrection here, but all the pieces have to fit. Let's work our way backwards through the pieces from the end to the beginning. The good news of the gospel is not good news, even if, though you believe Christ died, he was not raised. The good news of the gospel is not good news, even if, believing you have sinned, yet you do not believe that Christ died for your sins. The good news of the gospel is not good news if you don't believe you have sinned. For if you have not sinned, what need have you of a savior? If you have no need of a savior, what have you need of Christ or God or the church? To what purpose would you need any of that? Some years ago now, there was a somewhat famous politician that some Christians were saying had become a Christian. They said that we should be patient with him because he was just a baby Christian. However, it was reported by others that this person had said after his supposed conversion that he had never thought that he had done anything that needed forgiveness. Now, I don't know if any of what I just said is true of that particular person or not, but if there is any person on earth that has such an attitude, you can be sure that they have not come into a saving knowledge of Christ. My fellow believers that are gathered here today, if you are indeed a true believer, then of course you understand, at least in part, the nature of sin and your need for a savior. 
But Paul thinks it necessary to remind the Corinthians of what they have been saved from, and the letter to the Corinthians is preserved for our instruction also. So what should we be learning from this reminder that sin is part of the gospel? What should we be learning about the fact that Christ died for our sins? For the purposes of this sermon, I am dividing the answer into two parts. Those of us who are believers and those who are not believers, but to whom the gospel message should go out so that in hearing they might come to true salvation. Even though from God's point of view in eternity, he chose us from the he chose us before the foundation of the world and were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. See Ephesians 1.4, Revelations 3.8, Revelation 7.8. In our world of time, Colossians 1.13 tells us, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In this world of time that we currently live in, for believers, there was a definite time before Christ when we were in the domain of darkness, and a time after we knew Christ when we were transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. If you are a believer today, remember that also today, there are those that are still in darkness that need to come to the light of God through Christ. If you are a believer today, you should be careful not to apply the things that are true of those who have already been transferred into the kingdom of God to those that are still in the domain of darkness. Why am I calling attention to this? Let me step back for a moment and regroup to explain some of my motives. Whenever I've had the privilege and responsibility of teaching or discussing the Bible with others, I try to keep in mind that everything I am admonishing others to do or think must also apply to me personally. The principle here is the expansion on the concept given by Jesus in Matthew and Luke concerning the speck in others' eyes when there is a log in my own. There's also the sequence in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 21, that begins, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Therefore, while I am speaking to you, I am also speaking to myself. I need to be concerned not only about my fellow believers, but also about those still in the domain of darkness. I need my concern to be stirred up beyond my fear of man to be willing to speak the truth in love. In our adult immersion, immersion group class, which is what we call Sunday school here, we are currently studying the Bible with the aid of a book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Pastor Ortland is attempting to teach Christians to overcome our warped view of God. That is Christians he's talking to. God, that is all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are not wrathful or vindictive towards God's own people, but his heart is gentle and lowly, rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. For believers, those already in the kingdom of his beloved son, we are comforted when we sin because, as Hebrews 7.25 says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And we as believers do not do need, and we as believers do need to hear and be continually reminded of that. God is for us and not against us. I have been challenged by this study of this book in our Sunday school class at several points. I intellectually ascended to all the, what the Bible says about the love of God for his children, but has it truly penetrated to the utmost depths of my understanding? Do I truly love God with all my heart, all my soul, 
all my mind and all my strength as God wants us to understand him and who he actually is. So yes, the gospel is for us who already believe. <clears throat> to remind us of who we are in Christ. To remind us that since we are in Christ, we have been given the power to resist temptation. To remind us, as 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. Yet, there are those that are still in the domain of darkness, those who have not been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. For the remainder of the sermon, I want to focus on those to whom we should be sharing the good news. If you read all the way through the book of Acts, paying attention to every time the gospel is presented, you will find that the apostles or their associates always talk about the need to repent from sin with the solution being Jesus Christ. But they took into account whether they were talking to Jews or outright pagans. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 and 23, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. When the message of the gospel was given to the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, the preachers of the gospel could come straight to the point that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the one who was to rescue the people of Israel. They preached to the Jews that the rescue brought by the Messiah was not necessarily what they were looking for, though. The Jews were looking for, among other things, a sign from the Messiah that he would be a king to overthrow their political oppressors. Instead, they preached that this Jesus, rejected by the Jewish leaders, was the Christ. They preached the stumbling block that, as foretold by the prophets, God's Christ would suffer and die for the sins of his people. They preached the stumbling block that a more important rescue that they needed was from their sins and that they should repent now, turning back that their sins through Jesus could be blotted out. The rescue that they had been seeking was putting the cart before the horse. Jesus in Luke 19.10 said that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Even the apostles before the ascension had asked Jesus if he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel at that time. But after the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the message that the apostles preached was the stumbling block. First, the Christ must suffer, die, and rise so that forgiveness of sins could be accomplished. The other part of the Messiah's mission to the Jews that had been seen from the Old Testament scriptures was not yet here. Peter, preaching to the people in the temple in chapter 3 of Acts, said to them, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, that he thus fulfilled, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The message of the gospel could be presented this way because the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, because of their association with the Jews, already had a background in who God is and a background in what sin is from the law. 
This is one of the reasons that Paul could say in Romans chapter 3 that there were many advantages in being a Jew. They had been given the very oracles of God, the law. Not that the law of God could save them, but it taught them who God was and that they needed rescue. Paul tells us in Galatians that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we may be justified by faith. Therefore, when the gospel was preached to the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, they could get straight to the point. In the wisdom of God, the Jews had been scattered throughout the Roman world as prepared ground for the gospel message. No doubt, many of the God-fearing Gentiles who came to know Christ were a further bridge in reaching other Gentiles. What about the gospel message? What about the gospel message was different when Paul spoke to outright pagans, such as when he spoke to those in Athens in chapter 17 in Acts. It wasn't different in the sense of its end goal, but the message had to include more background information. The Athenians did not have the background on who the true God of the universe was or what sin actually was. Sure, maybe we could say that some of the philosophers might have been generally aware of what those Jews over there believe, but Paul was proclaiming it to them as the actual true state of affairs. Paul preached the true God versus their false and unknown gods. Picking up in verse 24 of Acts chapter 17, Paul preaches, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed, every, he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In those verses, Paul gives them an introduction to God, that he is the one in charge. Unlike the Greek gods, the true God made everything. As such, he needs nothing from us. He continues, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. In verses 26 and 27, Paul informs them that we all, all humans everywhere, are descendants of the one man first created by God and are therefore in the same boat, so to speak concerning our relationship to God and our need to find him. There is, there are, no special class of humans excluded from this need, not even the Greeks. He continues in verse 29, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Verse 29, Paul informs them that the true God is not like their idols. Their idols are merely works of their hands and their imagination, unlike the true and living God. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In verse 30, I believe Paul is alluding to the fact that God had chosen Israel to be a special people to work through, but now he is commanding all people everywhere to turn from their sin to God by means of the man God appointed to judge the world. 
and that this man was validated by being raised from the dead. We know who Paul was talking about, Jesus. But Paul does not get, get the chance at this time to explain further, for we find out from verse 32, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. I'm not sure how common the idea is, but I've read that many believe that this is just the outline of what Paul preached and that he used many more words. Nevertheless, notice that he did not get a chance in this message to go in detail about who Christ actually was. Once again, the verses in 1 Corinthians that says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. The whole idea of an executed criminal being the savior of mankind, foolishness. That he would be raised from the dead, foolishness. That our main problem is sin, foolishness. Yet, Paul was able to lay a foundation for further gospel explanation. There were those who said, we will hear you again about this. We are not told that Paul spoke again to any of those people, but perhaps enough seeds had been planted that later, they would hear more from the Jews and the devout persons that he had previously argued with in the Athenian marketplace. Also, despite the first appearance of failure, we're told in verse, 20, uh, verse 34, some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Since the word others are used there, you might Suppose that there has to be at least three more, so there's at least five people. We don't know how many people joined. You may wonder at this point, what is the application? This is all interesting information, but what does it mean to us? My intended purpose here is for encouraging us, myself as much as you, in not only thinking about but actually proclaiming the gospel message. Not perhaps in standing before a crowd, but even just one-on-one -on -one with friends, family, acquaintances. I hope I have shown how the message of sin is important to understanding the gospel. We are offering a cure to a disease that the unsaved world doesn't think they have. They believe that they are suffering from a minor cold, a case of the sniffles, but their, progress, their prognosis is terminal, and we must not lull them into believing otherwise with their attempt to share Jesus the Christ, the appointed, anointed one of God, who will judge the world in righteousness on that day. More than 20 years ago now, someone gave me an audio cassette tape copy. Yes, and some people wonder, what in the world is that? Things that we used to listen to audio on. An audio cassette tape copy of a sermon called Hell's Best Kept Secret by a street preacher named Ray Comfort. His main point was, and is to this day, because he's still alive and going, as far as I know, that the modern church has mostly abandoned attempting to convince people of their sin, sin as part of evangelism. As a result, evangelism has, in many places, in many churches, become merely about lifestyle enhancement, rather than a call to repentance from sin to, unto Christ. The extreme version of this is the so-called prosperity gospel, which promises actual material benefits in response to actual financial investment in a church organization and ministry. There are also much less extreme versions of this that may merely promise peace, joy, and lasting happiness from believing in Jesus. Air quotes, believing in Jesus. Other churches 
also air quote churches, believe a social gospel or a gospel of merely good deeds. However, a careful study of the message of Jesus and the apostles regarding the reason to come to Jesus is because of our need to be saved from our sin and to escape the wrath to come. This is one of those messages that seems like it should be obvious once you start checking all the New Testament scriptures like some of those I've cited for you today. However, it doesn't seem to be obvious, which is why we all need to be reminded of it. In his teachings on evangelism, Ray Comfort emphasized that he is not advocating for hellfire and brimstone preaching that leads to fear-filled and possibly false converts, but tear-filled converts that understand both the depth of their sin before God and the mercy and forgiveness available from God through Christ. He advocates using scripture and the law of God, mostly in the form of the Ten Commandments, to kindly start the evangelism process to allow the Holy Spirit to convict the world according to sin and righteousness and judgment, as John 16, 8 says. Wait a minute, you might say, isn't the Ten Commandments Old Testament? So it is, but I will remind you of what is repeatedly said in the book of Acts and elsewhere about how Jesus was demonstrated and proved to be the Christ from the scriptures. Those scriptures were not the New Testament. The New Testament was not even started by the beginning of the book of Acts. The apostles and other disciples that preached from the scriptures were doing so solely from what we call the Old Testament at that time. As to a possible question about whether preaching the law was valid, remember the verses previously about the law being a schoolmaster, being a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. When Paul preached to Felix in Acts chapter 24, we find that as part of speaking to him about faith in Christ Jesus, that Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed about this and told him, to go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Although Felix sent for Paul many times in the next two years, we are not told that he ever believed, but was just hoping to be paid off by Paul. No doubt, Paul was using the Old Testament law to convict Felix of his sin. Felix sadly never came to a saving knowledge of Christ as far as we know. So even if this form of biblical is even if, even if this form of preaching is biblical, it is not a formula that we can use to guarantee success. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3:6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. We are to be faithful to preach the correct message using good seed and good water, but it is God that will give the harvest. <clears throat> I have now reached the last lap of this message. Not quite the final conclusion, but getting close. Before I reach the finish line, I want to remind you of what we have covered today, all concerning things of first importance, the gospel message. I have presented for your consideration that our sins, that the phrase our sins is part of the phrase Christ died for our sins. There are many glorious truths associated with that for those who have believed and have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the light of Jesus Christ. But of those yet in the domain of darkness, we need to speak the words of the good news. And speaking of the good news, there is bad news at the beginning that is often 
not believed. That is the news of our sin. And the wrath of God in the day of judgment with the good news of the solution being found in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I focused our attention on these things in hopes of encouraging our thoughts towards how we might approach evangelizing all those we come in contact with. I do this as much to encourage me as I do it to encourage any of you. Based on scripture and those I have heard preach it, I encourage you to be kind, but not nice. Although the words nice and the word kind are somewhat synonymous, there is a difference. Based on both print and online dictionaries, the word kind primarily denotes of a sympathetic or helpful nature, a forbearing nature, gentle, arising from or characterized by sympathy or forbearance. Whereas nice more nearly fits in the idea of being polite, pleasing, agreeable, unoffensive. You can nice someone right into hell, which I fear many organizations that call themselves churches may be doing even today. You can be so polite, so agreeable that you never risk offending someone with the message of the gospel that includes making them aware of the fact that they are a sinner in need of a savior a savior that will enable them to escape the wrath to come. When sharing the gospel, we need to be kind, but not nice. When the Pharisees stood against Jesus, he was not nice. He pointed out their sin. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus asking how he might obtain eternal life, Jesus wasn't nice, but he was kind. He kindly gave the man an answer so that he would compare himself with the standard of the commandments so that he would realize he was a sinner. That man went away sad, not believing. Yet, Jesus had been kind to him. Had Jesus been nice to him, he might have had the false assurance that he was okay remaining in sin. Kindness in sharing the gospel means not being afraid to offend people with the message that they need rescuing from their sin. That does not mean that we should aim to offend or be offensive ourselves. As good servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to behave so as to adorn the teaching of our God and Savior, drawing a principle from Titus chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. He says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I was talking to bond servants there, but the idea of good works is shows up elsewhere in the New Testament. And Paul says that doing the right thing will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It is the message that a person is not adequate in themselves that offends. We, the messenger, should not be offensive in our own person. Nevertheless, we should be prepared for the hearers to shoot the messenger, so to speak. The Apostle John tells us, 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And Jesus said in John 7.7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. As part of being kind, but not nice, we do not always have to lead with a person's most obvious sin. As James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable for it all. If our words drawn from the words of scripture, can be used by the Holy Spirit to convict even at one point. 
Then eventually, as the seed is watered and grows, they may be convicted of all their sin and someday come to Christ. So it is not always necessary to lead with talking about the sin of murder for those who kill their unborn children, or at the sin of sexual immorality for those who advocate for pride and same-sex relationships. There is indeed a time and place for that, but maybe not always as the first contact situation. They may have already hardened their hearts in areas of sin that they have made their identity, but may still be reachable by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit if we use the words of what we call the law. We can be kind and gentle in using the words of Scripture so that, we can see in, so that they can see in themselves the sin for which they would condemn others. This would include such things as lying and cheating and stealing, envy, covetousness, and so forth. Ray Comfort believes that there are so many false converts in the world today because, as he says, quote, we haven't followed the biblical example and preached law to the proud and grace to the humble. Always when you see Jesus approach a proud, arrogant, self-righteous person with the gospel, he gave law before grace, always. With the law, he broke the hard heart. With the gospel, he healed the broken heart. Why did he do that? Because he always did those things that were pleasing in the Father's sight. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, unquote. So in consideration of that, if you think it's supported by scriptures, I want to caution about offering the love of God in the wrong way. The world system and its songs, books, movies, and day-to-day conversation has distorted the meaning of the word love so much that we should be careful how we tell people who are, who are still in the domain of darkness that God loves them. We should remember for those still in the domain of darkness that the way that God shows his love to a sinner is as says, said in Romans 5, seven, verses 7 through 8, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Said another way, while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. That is the right kind of love to share a love that solves the problem of sin and the wrath of God. A solution to a problem that must be understood to be applied. That is, the solution to the problem is the solution to a problem that must be understood to be applied. To apply it, we must tell the truth about it. In conclusion, much of the message today has been for those who already believe. This includes how believers should view sin in the gospel and some ideas to prayerfully consider with scriptures open about how we should share the gospel. But there may be some here today who haven't actually been transferred from the domain of darkness. To any of those here today, I hope you haven't heard a new message. I know it has been preached at this church, but maybe like a song so often repeated that you no longer hear it and it never penetrated to the core of your soul. But sometimes hearing the same core message from a different preacher with a different set of words seems like a new message you have never heard before. If you've never repented from your sins, this word here and now is your call to do so, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. That is, 
Call upon the Lord. Call upon what Christ has done for sinners. For today I have delivered to you, this congregation, what is of first importance, that which I have also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let us pray. Lord, I ask that my words, even if they're not remembered, it would be your scripture that is remembered. Your words are what is important. I ask that our hearts would be moved, not only to remember the love, grace, and mercy that you've given to us as believers, but that our hearts would also be moved to respond to those around us, our friends, our neighbors, our acquaintances, anyone that we come in contact, that we would be willing to set aside our fear of man and I pray this for myself, that I would be willing to speak your truth, your words, and not hold back on the part of the good news that is seen as bad news, that people have a disease, a sin, a terminal illness. The wrath of God will come down upon them if we do not speak all of what is indicated in the scriptures, that they would see their need for a savior, that we do so gently and kindly. I'd ask that if there's any here today that for whatever reason these words are the first time that have actually penetrated their soul, that they would respond and believe. Ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.